All right, our kids class starts at this time just in the back of this larger room here in the classroom in the back. Kids are more than welcome to go there if you'd like. And if you're unaware, we also have a fully staffed nursery every week uh, that just meets in the room off the corner over here. And parents, you're more than welcome uh, to make use of that if you would like. All right, well, I want to invite you to join me in Mark's Gospel, chapter 5. Mark 5. Uh, Some things exist to destroy. A few years ago, the county sent a crew to our house to trim the trees uh, that are underneath our power line, and their wood chipper spit out into a million pieces everything that they threw into it. I mean, it's really pretty amazing. In in goes a whole branch and just... It all goes out into the back of the truck. Uh, That's what a wood chipper does. That's what it was designed to do. It destroys whatever it sinks its teeth into. Do you realize that right now there is someone trying to do that to you and to your life? Literally right here and now. And this person lives and breathes for the thrill of destruction. His name is Satan. And he wants your life. And he wants to destroy it. He will destroy your life, and he wants to deceive you. So let me state what should be obvious, and that I think that many of us probably know in our heads, and yet somehow we often forget it in our everyday life. Satan has nothing good planned for your life. That is a simple fact. He just does not. And perhaps there is no clearer picture of this than the demoniac in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. There is this man who is demon-possessed, and at first we think that perhaps he has one demon, and we actually will find out that he has hundreds, probably thousands of demons living within him. And Satan is destroying this man from the inside out. And uh, yes, he is certainly an extreme case scenario. There's no question about that. But his situation, uh, we might say, puts in bold for you and for me the effect that Satan wants to have on your life. And as we look at this man, uh, you should note as we work through this text, three different kinds of power that we want to draw our attention to that I think God draws our attention to. And the first kind of power that uh, you should note, you should take note of the dominating power of evil. It is so, so clear in this text. Look at verses 1 and 2 of Mark 5. It says that they came to the other side of the sea. Remember, Jesus and his disciples are on a boat. They've uh, just encountered a storm at sea. And now they're coming to the other side of the sea. It may still be nighttime. It may be morning. The text doesn't really tell us. But verse 1 says, They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Jesus steps out of the boat, and no sooner than he does that, immediately uh, an unclean man meets him. And the text really focuses attention on the fact that he is that. He is unclean. He is defiled. And why is it that he is defiled? Well, there's an unclean spirit or a demon living within him. He's also defiled because he lives among the dead. If you came into contact with a corpse or or the dead in the Old Testament, according to the Old Testament law, that rendered you unclean. And that's where this man is living. Not to mention it's just absolutely bizarre. Who would want to live there? In the mountains, among the tombs, amongst the dead. 
This man is a picture of what happens when evil takes over in a person's life. When sin and or Satan hold any ground in the life of a person, even a small amount in your heart, what happens? What is it like? Well, look at this man's life. And let's talk about what evil is like. There are several things we can note about evil First, evil cannot be subdued by external restraints. It cannot be done. Look at verses 3 and 4. This man uh, that just met Jesus is now being described. It says that he lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. No one can bind or subdue this man by any kind of external means, by any kind of external restraints. It just cannot be done. Uh, people were not strong enough to do that. Iron chains and shackles were not strong enough to do that. I mean, the text tells us that people tried that and he literally just wrenched the, the chains and shackles apart. Uh, we, we get the impression he did that with his bare hands. He was uncontrollable, like a wild animal. Evil cannot be subdued by external restraints. Verse 4 says that no one had the strength to subdue him. Uh, That word there, subdue, is used elsewhere of taming wild animals. Uh, It's what happens when a horse is broken, for example. When evil takes control of a person, it is like a horse that cannot be broken or that cannot be tamed. It is like a lion or tiger that no one can make domestic. I mean, people often try, you know, here's my tame tiger. (laughs) I'm going to go pet him and hug him and hold him. I feel like that's a bad idea. Evil is like that. You, you, You cannot make it domestic. You cannot subdue it. External restraints and safeguards will never bring it into subjection. It cannot be done. Evil cannot be subdued by you, others, or externally imposed restraints. And again, I would just remind you that Satan has nothing good planned for your life. He wants to dominate it, and particularly through sin in your heart. And this problem is not something that you or anyone else or any harness or restraint or any law can fix. And the sooner you realize that, the better. Do you understand that? That, that? that evil cannot be subdued by external restraints. And you might even think about how this works even uh, with your own battle with sin or anybody's battle with sin. And Satan's work in the life of an individual. Uh, you think about perhaps uh, a struggle with something like pornography. And well, how, how is that problem fixed? And sure, there are some very practical steps that can be taken. You can have an accountability partner. You could have uh, some type of, of, of purity program that you're going through and whatever the case may be. But none of those things can actually fix the problem. Uh, think about something like alcohol. And maybe you have an alcoholic and he goes, man, I got a problem. And he, he goes off to AA and he goes through some program and maybe he's, he's helped in a way. But the heart of the problem, what's really going on, like that program can't actually fix it. Think about a dynamic like parenting. 
And uh, parents can impose a lot of restraints on their children for 18 years, and they can, they can bring them, they can fit them into a certain mold. And then what often sometimes you see is some kid that looks great for 18 years, and they get out of the home, and it's just all the restraints, and they just go do whatever it is that they want to do. Evil cannot be subdued by external restraints. And the sooner we realize that, the sooner we understand that, the better. And guess what else? Evil is always, always highly destructive. Remember, again, Satan has nothing good planned for your life. Evil is always highly destructive to others and to self. Uh, We might think of it like a tornado destroying everything in its path. When evil takes control of your life, you actually become a hazard, not just to yourself, but to other people. Uh, We see that evil is destructive to others. This man is a threat to society and to the people all around him. And attempts have been made and uh, and to no avail to deal with him and, and try to make him safe for everybody else. Matthew 8, 28 uh, has the parallel account, the same story given in Matthew's gospel. And it tells us there actually that two demon-possessed men met Jesus when he got off the boat. It says that they were coming out of the tombs and they were so fierce and the idea is they were so violent that no one could pass by that way. Where these men lived, uh, where this demoniac was at, it wasn't safe to walk by there. It was not safe to be around this man. You need to understand something. When when evil has a stronghold in your life, you are not safe. You pose a threat to every single person around you. And, And there's very much a focus on the demonic in this text, but Satan loves to work through sin. That is his bread and butter. And when that is in your heart, you are a danger. Evil is always highly destructive to others, but also to self. Look at verse 5. It says, Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out. And notice what else it says. It says that he was cutting himself with stones. This man is cutting himself with rocks. And the the picture that the text gives us of this man, the, the word used for cutting there is the word for laceration. He has lacerations probably all over his arms and his chest and his legs. Scabs. Scars, no doubt, everywhere. Uh, he's wrenched metal chains apart. I mean, his wrists. and uh, He's probably bruised from doing that sort of thing. And I would imagine that he's oozing with infection from all of these open wounds. Satan wants to destroy you. And this man is trying to cope. And, and, and that's often how Satan works with his lies. Hey, you know what? He, run to this to cope. And the thing that you run to, all it does is just make matters worse. And he will lie to you all day long with just a whole different host of lies. You have a right to be angry. Don't feel bad about that. Anger is good. It feels good. It's okay to lust and to fill your eyes with someone who's not your spouse. That's great. Go for it. Do it. Living for you will be, be worth it. Do you know what else? Bitterness and unforgiveness, it feels good. You have a right to do that. You have a right to hold on to that. You should. Revenge is sweet. Seek it. You'll be glad you did. Tell that lie. You'll be better off. Steal that. You deserve it. 
gossip, slander, go for it. All this stuff is good. Evil is like a tornado destroying everything in its path. We've all seen news footage of tornado damage, right? I mean, you, you see just houses that look like piles of toothpicks. Cars overturned, trees uh, through buildings, roofs that have been uh, ripped off almost like they were just on a hinge. That's the picture. Evil will destroy so many treasures. Like what? Well, everything. It's more like what will it not destroy? Your marriage, your home and family life, your friendships and relationships, your finances and career, the years of your life it will take. You name it, evil is like a tornado and it doesn't matter what it is. Evil will destroy it. Everything in its path, it does not care. Evil will lay claim to and destroy absolutely everything, including you. And the picture is so clear. It's so vivid here. Satan has nothing good planned for your life. And you can look at this man and you can see it. Yeah, obviously, I mean, he's demon-possessed. But all of us believe lies every single day. The type of the lies that Satan loves to tell. Yeah, that's not a big deal. You can do that. No, do you realize how destructive all of that is? Evil cannot be subdued by external restraints. It's always highly destructive. And we can notice well about it that evil drives away all forms of peace. Look at verse 5 again. And just consider this man and his situation. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains. He was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Satan wants to torment you. And he promises a far better, a far more enriching, satisfying way of life. But it's all a lie. He takes, he takes, he takes, and he takes, and he does not give. And one of the things that he takes is peace. Evil drives away all forms of peace. It's like a thief that comes into your house or comes into your heart and snatches the things with the greatest intrinsic value, like peace. This is Satan's plan for your life, and it's terrible. This man has absolutely no peace whatsoever. He has no rest in his soul. He's agitated. He's tormented. He's plagued. And the text describes this man. He can't sit still. He can't sleep. He can't keep quiet. He is up. The text describes all throughout the night, night and day. He's running around the mountains and through the tombs. He's up all throughout the night at regular intervals in torment and agony, roaming the tombs and on the mountainside. There is no peace or tranquility in this man's heart or in this man's soul. And that is Satan's plan for your life. And again, he works through sin. And when those things take control and when those things take root and go down into the soil of your heart, peace goes running away. Verse 5 says, Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. That is what Satan wants for you. He wants to drive away all your peace until there is nothing left. And meanwhile, he's going to tell you that he's the one with the answers and solutions. But there's more to this picture. Evil grows progressively worse over time. You know that Satan is never satisfied? 
He always wants more. And verse 3 gives us an interesting detail. It says, no one could bind him. And then there's this little word, anymore. Apparently, there was a time when it wasn't quite as bad as, as it is now. But things had gotten progressively worse. Uh, and that's what evil does. It grows progressively worse over time. It's like a snowball rolling down a hill. It's really hard to make snowballs here in Alberta. I grew up near Lake Michigan, and we just had a bunch of wet, heavy snow. Making snowballs was super easy. A little tricky here with our humidity levels in Alberta, but a couple winters ago, my kids and I went out one, one Sunday evening after church. It was dark, and it was a super moist, wet night, and we went out, and we uh, started making a snowball, and that snowball started as something that all of us could easily just hold in our hand. And my kids and I started pushing it down the hill and it got bigger and it got bigger and it got bigger and it got bigger to the point where it weighed so much and was so big that with all of my weight, I couldn't move the thing. Uh, my daughter called, pulled us all off and said, I got it and got up next to it and gave it everything she had and it didn't move a bit. I literally weighed hundreds of pounds. Evil is like a snowball rolling downhill. Things do not get better. There's an avalanche kind of effect. Or you might think of it being like a bacteria or a cancer. And it sure, it may start in a localized realm in the heart or in the life. A small isolated spot, but it grows exponentially until it takes over everything. Satan is never satisfied. He always wants more. The more bondage, the more slavery, the more damage, the better. That is how he operates. Evil is like that. And when given an inch, it will take a mile. And again, when, when evil captures the heart, things do not get better. They only get worse. And Satan keeps saying, it's fine. You're good. Try this. Try that. Dig in a little more. Also, evil wages war against God. Look at verses 6 to 8. And when this man saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man you unclean spirit. Okay, so the man runs. I would imagine he's running at like Mach 10. He, I mean, the way that this guy could wrench chains apart, he's probably flying over those mountains to where Jesus is at. And he falls at his feet, not in worship actually, but in subservience. And he makes this statement, and it's actually the demon speaking through the vocal cords of the man. And he says this, what have you to do with me? It's a bit of an odd statement. But it means something like this. What do we have in common? Or what business do we have with each other? There's a, a major tension there because Jesus and evil have nothing in common. They're opposed. They're enemies. They're in conflict. And when Jesus asks the demon his name, he says that his name is legion. It's a military term. And then he offers this explanation, for we are many. A legion was the largest military unit in the Roman army. It, it, a legion would have consisted of five to 6,000 men. Uh, this man did not have just one demon. Now the text reveals to us that he has probably thousands of demons. He was occupied by 
under the domination of and impressed, oppressed by the strength of an army of demons, it is war. And that's what evil does. Evil wages war against God. It's always opposed to him. It's like a massive, powerful army fighting to conquer, take over, ravish, and destroy. And that is literally what is happening in this man's life. Everything God stands for, evil stands against. Uh, So what does God want us to do? Well, take note of the dominating power of evil. Look how destructive it is. So far, we've seen that evil cannot be subdued by external restraints. It's always highly destructive. It drives away all forms of peace. It it gets progressively worse over time, and it wages war against God. Is there evil in your life, even in the smallest form? And And by the way, it doesn't matter who you are. Evil has the same kind of effect. It doesn't matter if you you, you call yourself a Christian or whether you do not. Satan and sin destroy. And he has nothing good planned for your life. And I think one of the things that God wants us to grasp from this text, and it's really important that you understand, is that you were born in bondage and slavery to Satan. And you can't fix that. Is that clear in your mind? You cannot fix that. You cannot reform it. You can't uh, implement a bunch of laws and try to follow them and the problem goes away. Whether you're a Christian or not, as one person has said, conquering evil starts by recognizing your utter helplessness to conquer it yourself. There is absolutely no question about the dominating power of evil. Being controlled by Satan is terrible. Being in slavery to him is terrible. Having sin take hold in your life is terrible. But there is a greater power. And we turn our attention to a second kind of power now at this point. Take note of the superior power of Jesus. This awful picture has been painted. But the story continues. And I want to read uh, down, beginning in verse 6 down through verse 13. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him saying, send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them the demons permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd numbering about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. We want to note the superior power of Jesus. Um, As as I read through verses 6 to 13, think through this question. Who is greater? Jesus or all the forces of of evil? Jesus or these thousands of demons? What What did you just see when you read there? Who is greater? Jesus exercises authority over evil. 
What is it that you see Legion doing? All these demons. And what do you see Jesus doing in these verses? I mean, we read, we read through all those verses. Let me just give you kind of a high-level view of what we just saw. Legion, this demon and all the demons that are with him, is the one begging and asking for permission to do things. In fact, he begs and he begs and he begs and he begs. Every time he talks, he's begging. And Jesus is the one commanding and granting permission. There is no contest going on in these verses. In verse 7, the demons know who Jesus is. I mean, they, they make this massive statement about Jesus Christ and who he is. They know exactly who he is. They know that he is God. They recognize that and they beg Jesus not to torment them by sending them to their final eternal punishment early. They're begging for mercy. They are begging Jesus not to drive them into their eternal torment now. And then in verses 8 to 10, they beg Jesus not to send them out of the country where there's nothing left to destroy. They have this massive craving to destroy And they're begging Jesus about where he's going to send them. And again, that is the language. They are begging. They are begging. They are begging. And in verses 11 to 12, they beg Jesus for permission to enter the pigs instead. And just to be clear, they are not negotiating. This isn't sort of some negotiation back and forth. They are pleading for mercy. Jesus is a superior power. And the point is simple. Jesus Christ is, the greater, is, is of greater power than the evil that would dominate your life. Jesus is greater than Satan. Satan is not the final authority. Evil does not have to reign any longer in your life. It doesn't have to be like that. Jesus exercises authority over evil and it gets better. Jesus drives evil out. Look at verse 13. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. Jesus drove all of the demons out of this man. And when he did so, I mean, this story is just remarkable. You know, if you grew up in church in Sunday school, it's like this one just sticks in your mind. I, I remember seeing this like on the flannel graph, right? Like the pigs, you know, over the mountain they go. <laughs> it's incredible. But the demons enter these 2,000 pigs, which then rush down the steep hill over a cliff, and they drown down in the Sea of Galilee. It's mass, mass pig suicide. I think there's something we should note about the picture that we're given here. If there's any question about the plans that Satan has for your life, then you look no further than the pigs. They were completely and totally destroyed. What they were trying to do to this man, they did to the pigs in short order. Satan has nothing good planned for your life. He wants to bring you to a grave, and not just an earthly grave, but an eternal grave in hell. That's his plan. To wrap you up in sin and bondage and slavery and, and, and misery and no peace and loneliness and isolation and ultimately bring you to hell. That's his plan for your life. But that's not how it has to be. Because Jesus can set you free from Satan's plans for your life and the sin that grips and binds your heart and the slavery that you're all bound up in. 
You cannot take on evil. You cannot restrain it. You cannot fix this problem. And that, I think, is so clear in the first few verses. This cannot, what needs done, cannot be achieved by human means or external things or reform or attempted acts of goodness. You cannot drive out of your heart or life what is there in it. We've noted the dominating power of evil. It cannot be done. But the text says, yes, it cannot be done, but Jesus can. Take note of the superior power of Jesus. He exercises authority over evil, and he has the power to drive it away and to set you free. What do we call that? Well, we could call it grace. We could call it mercy. We could call it the gospel. We could call it good news. It's what every single person needs in order to experience freedom from evil. Christians, by the way, need it too. Freedom continues the exact same way that it begins. This text tells us that Jesus is the answer. He will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. This, can't, this man cannot fix his problem. This can't, man cannot release himself from slavery. This man cannot find a way to find peace in his heart. Something has to happen. Jesus must become the answer. He is the answer and he must become the answer in the life of a person. And that really happens when a person affirms the work of Christ. There is a war going on between good and evil, between Jesus and Satan. And Jesus is hands down the superior power. And a person has to affirm the work of Christ and his warfare on your behalf. And your identity as his child, his conquering of evil and what he has done. All the way back in the book of Genesis, it was promised that the seed of the woman, some child of the woman, would come and crush the serpent's head. And years later, Jesus Christ was born. He, he, he came from heaven and he was born on earth and he went to a cross and there war was fought. And he suffered and he died and he paid for sin in full to pay the price for sin and crush the serpent's head. And he rose from the grave and he triumphed. And what a person must do is realize, it, I cannot fix this. It is him. It is Jesus that is the answer to all of this. Only he can set me free. And it is only through him that I can live in any kind of freedom from sin and its slavery and its bondage. We want to note a third kind of power as well. Take note of the transforming power of mercy. Verse 19 goes on to describe what Jesus did for this hopeless man as mercy. It's described in a lot of ways, but that's one of the words that's chosen. Mercy, pity, compassion. And God's mercy in a life is transformative. And so we want to note the transforming power of mercy. Some experience it. Some people truly, legitimately experience the transforming power of mercy. Look at verses 14 and 15. As the story continues, the herdsmen fled and told it. They, they told everything that happened in the city and in the country. And the people came to see 
what it was that had happened. They wanted to see it with their own eyes. And then verse 15 says, and they came to Jesus. So all the townspeople come out to the hillside where this has happened. And they came to Jesus in verse 15, and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion. And notice how he's described. Sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Uh, The herdsmen run back to town. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, maybe these guys are like hired pig, shepherd, farmer guys. And they go running back to town and they've got to tell their boss, boss, like, we had a terrible day. (laughs) Can you sit down? Because we got some bad news. Your 2,000 pigs? They're they're no more. (laughs) What? And they tell the story and it's so crazy, like, so crazy, like, you can't even believe it. And the story about the demon-possessed man, well, the word just spreads. And now everybody's running out to this hillside to see this thing for themselves. And what do they see? They see this man there with Jesus, but he's an entirely different man. He has undergone a radical transformation. In fact, it's almost like we might say he's new. He's not even the same guy. Verse 15 describes three details about him that are the total antithesis of what this man was earlier that day and what we read about in verses 1 to 5. We read that he's sitting there. Previously, we go like, okay, no big deal. He sat down. Okay, well, the idea, he's probably sitting there at the feet of Jesus, but he's sitting there. Previously, this man could not sit still to save his life. He was tormented. He was up and he was moving 24-7. He's a restless wonder. And now he's sitting there? Peace in his soul has brought peace to his body. And the text tells us as well that he's clothed. Previously, he shamelessly ran around naked with no dignity. That's another thing that evil does, by the way. It robs you of your basic human dignity. Satan wants to take that away. He wants to target the image of God in man. And now it's probably like this man has never felt more alive. He has never felt more human in all of his life. He's not some reckless animal. He's a human being with the image of God. And he's in his right mind. He's self-controlled. Uh, previously, he was crazy. He could not be controlled. And now he's not only clear-headed and thinking right and logically, he's also self-controlled. What, what shackles and chains could not do in the life of this man, Jesus did. And something inside of this man has now brought him under control and it's none other than Jesus Christ himself, the Holy Spirit living within this man. And Jesus will do that for you. Some people will experience the transforming power of mercy like this man did. It's something that Jesus does for them and only he can do it. And he'll do it for you. And so I want to ask you, recognizing that there's a very good chance that there are many of you sitting here, right here, right now, and you have never experienced the transforming power of Jesus in your life. And you go, well, I'm not like that guy. Sure, maybe it's not quite that bad. But it is that bad. Will you let Jesus do for you what he did for this man? And and I just want to invite you to ask him, Jesus, I cannot liberate myself from evil. 
I am a slave to Satan and sin. I am bound and I am in bondage. Will you do that for me? Will you do for me what you did for this man? Will you save me? And will you set me free? I believe that you can. You're greater than all the forces of evil. You conquered my sin and paid for it in full on the cross. Will you cleanse me? You triumphed over death itself. Will you save me? Some experience that, and you can be one of them. But I think that we should note as well that others reject the transforming power of mercy. And now we see that in verses 15 to 17. All these people have come out to see what's just happened. Let's look at these verses. Verse 15. And they came to see Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man and the one who had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And we read that they were afraid. And those who had been then those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man, and not just that, but also to the pigs. And then note what happens in verse 7. You think this is amazing, they'd be happy for this guy. Wow, like, Jesus is amazing. Well, what do they do? Verse 17, and they began to beg. Everybody in this passage is begging Jesus. The demons beg Jesus. Now the townspeople beg Jesus. In just a moment, the man that was demon-possessed, he's going to beg Jesus about something. But all these people began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. The townspeople, the truth of the matter is, they needed Jesus just as much as the demon-possessed man did. They're no better off internally. I mean, no doubt they look better. They've at least kind of got it together, at least when they're put alongside of him. They looked a lot better than him, but they too were in Satan's grip. And they needed the transforming power of mercy, but they flat out rejected it and said, Jesus, please leave. In verse 17, they begged Jesus to depart from their region. Why? Why do some people reject the transforming power of of mercy? I mean, whatever Jesus just did for this man is absolutely incredible. Why does everybody else want him to leave? I can give you at least two reasons. Some people fear the authority of Jesus. When they saw what had happened, when they got the picture, they saw the dead pigs floating down there in the Sea of Galilee. They saw this man who was under the domination of, to them, what was the most incredible power. And then they see a greater power enter the scene. The end of verse 15 says they were afraid. The implications of the power and authority of Jesus were too much for them. That type of power, the power and authority of Jesus demands submission. There is a king and he is here. It's a submission that they weren't ready to offer. Jesus demands lordship of your life. And we're going to see that in the life of the demon-possessed man. Now he's bowing before the king and saying to the king, can I come do this? And the king says, no, I have different plans for you. Do you fear the authority of Jesus and his lordship? Oh man, I, I can't, no, I don't want that. Because then I would have to bow and my life would have to look different and all the rest. <laughs> You're listening to Satan's lies. He does not want what's best for you. And it's true, Jesus' authority is supreme. There's no question about that, but he is a good king. This man, is he better off or is he worse? He's better. 
Some reject the transforming power of mercy because they fear the authority of Jesus. But I think I can give you another reason from this text. They value their pigs. We're still within the land of Israel. And according to Old Testament law, pigs were unclean animals in the eyes of God. How much do you think a pig is worth? I have no idea. I've never owned pigs. But I'm sure a pig is worth something. 2,000 of them just drowned? I mean, the, the economy of these towns probably just took a major, major hit. Major economic loss. And I don't think any of these people want any more of that. The pigs are unclean, but they're valuable to the people who possess them. Why don't people want God's mercy? Well, I think because they're often too busy counting their filthy pigs. Basically, their sin. You may want to hold on to your sin because it's valuable to you. And here's this great, awesome authority. His name is King Jesus. And if he is your Lord, that cannot be there. He's going to want to change you. He's going to want to rid that from your life. He's going to want to make you new and whole. And that pig's going to have to go. And As unclean as it is, but it's valuable. And it's precious. And I don't want to give it up. You may want to hold on to your sin because it's valuable to you. And you don't want to give it up. You don't, you don't, you don't really want to be set free. And Satan is lying to you. And by the way, if you're a Christian, you can, do that, that, you can do that same thing. Christians can continue in their patterns and habits of former bondage. Even as a Christian, you can be holding on to your pigs because you like them. I don't want to give this up. Don't forget about the dominating power of evil. Satan still has nothing good planned for your life. Everyone needs the transforming power of mercy. Look at verses 18 to 20. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him. He's his Lord now. Jesus is his Lord. And he's begging him that he might be with him. But verse 19, he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, the Deca, Ten, Polis city, a realm of 10 cities, how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. The man who has been demon-possessed wants to join Jesus. He begs Jesus, can I basically, can I become your 13th disciple? And Jesus, the Lord, the King, has a different plan for him. And what is that plan? He says, no, 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 there's something else I want you to do. Go tell everyone far and wide what I have done for you because everyone needs what you just got. Everyone needs the transforming power of mercy. And that's what Jesus wants to do once he saved you. This man, just imagine, I wish we could see this man in front of us. He's a new man, but the scars of the past are still all over this man's body. No doubt he had scars all over his body from his past. He has a crazy story. And Jesus basically tells this man, no, you, you go show and you go tell. You know, just like in elementary school, you, you did show and tell at school. That's what I want you to do. 
You go tell people your story. You go tell people what I did for you. That's what Jesus wants uh, you to do as well because everyone needs God's mercy. He wants you to go tell about that mercy and even say, here's my story. And it, sure, it's probably not quite as crazy as this guy's, but I'm, in another way, it is exactly that crazy. You go, here is my life. I was a slave. I was in bondage. I was on my way to hell. I was self-destructing. I was harming everyone around me through my sin. I had no peace. I was miserable. And I was on my way to hell. And Jesus saved me. That's what God wants this man to do. That's what he wants us all to do. Because everyone needs the transforming power of mercy. And if you have trusted Christ, let the gospel change you. It's the only way, it's the only pathway of change throughout your entire life. It's where it starts and it's the pathway forward. It's Jesus Christ and the good news of the gospel. That's how we change. Again, no amount of external restraints can fix the problems in the heart. Because of his superior power and authority, Jesus can set you free from the dominating power of evil and he can transform you by his mercy. Will you bow your heads with me at this time?